Wall Street, New York. What hell is this? A man-made prison of paper walls and spreadsheets that binds people to pay stubs and stock reports. Imaginary constructs that so often consume our lives. Wall Street is a jail, and its prisoners often check themselves in wearing a pair of golden handcuffs. Today's guests escaped that Armani Alcatraz to live a life of cage fighting, hitchhiking, and freedom around the world. And now, it's going to tell you how to do the same. Welcome to the Get Lost Podcast, everyone. I'm your host, Joe Sills. I'm a freelance travel writer and explorer. Today's guest is a global nomad who's visited 56 countries in the past six years. He's hitchhiked across Europe, he's cage-fighted his way through Peru, and he's bar-hopped around the Canary Islands. He's the author of Cage, Escaping the American Dream, and he's the host of the Divergent Path Podcast. Raleigh Peterkin, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, Joe. Excited to be here. Man, I'm so glad that you found us and reached out. Um, Oftentimes, people reach out to the show with a cool tale, and usually we're happy to share it. But today is special because your story is absolutely bonkers. (laughs) Thanks. Um, So where are you at right now? I know you've been living abroad for a while, but where is base for the pandemic? Yeah, so based on the pandemic is uh, just outside Boston. I was actually right before the pandemic, like kind of like the month before it was like March or so. I was in Turkey. I was like hitchhiking around Turkey for a month and I was in uh, Izmir, Turkey. And like it started to get like really bad. You know, they were starting to shut everything down, shutting down buses and everything. And I was planning on staying a little bit longer, but I just kind of panicked, pulled the ripcord and... uh, and actually last minute found a cheap flight back to the States. So uh, that's what happened. And that's what stranded me back here. Yeah, you say stranded and I kind of feel that too. Our passports right now are basically useless. Um, do, you, yeah. do you feel like, are you glad to be home? Or are you kind of like, shit, I'm stuck? I mean, I'm like, I think I'm like every other kind of traveling person i'm like shit i'm stuck you know it's a little bit claustrophobic back here um i mean you know what the thing is i I try to be put it in perspective and think that you know everyone in the world is going through something it's difficult for all of us and i try not to complain you know it's it's a tough time and you got to just make do with what you're given and we're all kind of in the same boat here 
Yeah, and you've been lucky enough to be on the road for six years. Um, similar to, to my story, I guess, in that I was out there for about six years just doing whatever. And there are pluses and minuses to being stable, like time to record the podcast. Exactly, yeah. Uh, tell us about your background. I know you're a nomad now, and that's kind of what you identify as. But before that, you, you were working on Wall Street? Yeah, so I actually... I was actually just taking a look at my resume and I got some like crazy things on there. So like I went to school at UPenn, the, the Wharton school, like undergraduate business school. I studied finance every summer during college. I like went and got an internship in New York doing something in finance. I was actually like really passionate about it. And I worked as a bond trader for a wall street bank for like three years out of college and so I was up there, I was working on Wall Street, you know, it was like living that life. And I had a Manhattan apartment and all of this stuff. And I was just, you know, working long hours, the whole the whole lifestyle. I mean, maybe not maybe not the whole lifestyle. Everyone always says like, oh, like the Wolf of Wall Street. I'm like, not that bad. <laughs> no, not the Quaaludes. No, 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 no Ferrari. But, you know, maybe eventually. <laughs> I think that's a lifestyle that as Americans we're kind of taught to aspire to. Um, I mean, it's, it's the pinnacle of that corporate life, dude, your finance, you're on wall street. That's the money ticket, I guess. Um, what changed your mind? Obviously something flipped in your head. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely agree with you. I mean, I felt that kind of my whole life that like rat race and the whole, like, this is the, the pinnacle of success and this is what, you have to do and you know i mean i was living that that was i was so dedicated to it it was my whole life and i think that just once i was in it and really fully 100 percent in that i realized that it wasn't something for me like i think part of it was just like sitting in an office all day you know the sedentary life of staring at my four giant computer screens in front of me some days not even seeing like sunlight when it was you know winter and you get there uh before the sun rises and everything like that and like it just like in the culture like i would see a lot of older guys that were in their like 50s and 60s that have been doing it for a long time and i would just look at them and be like these guys are kind of miserable and i don't really want to do this and i don't want to turn out like this and i think one of the big issues is that you know a lot of people people in their 20s or 30s like that i was kind of peers with would say like oh man i hate this this lifestyle sucks but uh i'll just do it another few years and then i'll make enough money to to get out yeah. and like everyone's got their kind of like idea of how that will happen or whatever and the thing is, it's this moving target and you'll never kind of make it there. And so, you know, what happens is you, you, they call it the golden handcuffs. You kind of like start on this path and then you all of a sudden you get expensive taste and kind of fit in with your new peer group. You got to like get like the Ferragamo shoes and you got to get the nice apartment with the thing. And then eventually you get a car, maybe you buy an apartment and you get a girlfriend or maybe a wife and you get kids and private schools. and it's kind of this like addiction to a certain lifestyle. And so I kind of saw that and I, there was a thought in my head like, okay, in a few years I'll get out. But then I started to hear these stories and I realized that that never happens. Like it's either now or never. Yeah. And, and so I was like, 
I was 26 years old and I was like, you know what? I have, well, actually, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself. Like, I, uh, I, I, went, I had this kind of stuff in my head and I went down to Peru on a vacation to visit my friend Ben. And my friend Ben had wrestled with me in college. We were on the same wrestling team. I was a division one collegiate wrestler as well. And he had moved down to Peru after college to go volunteer in like a little village outside of Arequipa. Mm-hmm. And he started fighting MMA while he was down there. He took his wrestling background and kind of applied it to mixed martial arts. And he became this like big famous name in like all over South America. He, he's like a big deal. Like when we went down to visit, like he was living in Lima with his girlfriend at the time, who's now his wife. And we went to Machu Picchu and like people would like stop him on the street and ask for his autograph. I mean, he was on TV all the time. And this is insane. This is like the, the movies where you find a friend in Thailand and he's like kickboxing and he's super famous or something. It's like an arena full of people. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he was like more than me even. Like Ben has a cool story. He, I mean, he was living there for like years, married a Peruvian, has uh, two children. And he, like I said, is, is famous. He's on Peruvian TV all the time. He like went native. And... Uh, and so, yeah, so then on the last day I was there, I trained with his, like, MMA team, and his coach is this guy who's, like, a legend. Like, think about, like, maybe not quite to this extent, but, like, how Manny Pacquiao is really famous in, like, the Philippines. It's, like, uh, uh, this guy, Ivan Iberico, is, like, a legend in Peru. It's, like, like a people. similar deal. Yeah, like, I'll be traveling. I'll be in, like, a hostel in, like, Morocco or something, and I meet a Peruvian guy years later, and I'll be like, oh, I fought for, like, Ivani Berico, the pit bull. And they'll be like, oh, of course, man. He's so famous, you know? <laughs> and and so I, I went and, like, trained with his team at the, on the last day of our visit to Peru. We had gone to Machu Picchu and done all this stuff, and um, I was wrestling with him, and, like... You know, I whooped his ass in wrestling. I like, I I took it to him because you know the level of wrestling in America in the United States is much higher than like South America in general. And I was a national champion in high school, and so like he was just like blown away. And he was like, he didn't speak any English, and I didn't speak any Spanish at the time. But like through Ben, he's like, let's go out for some drinks. Like right after it was like literally we were about to leave for the airport. So we go to this bar, and he just gets this big bottle of Johnny Walker Black. Uh, like a whole bottle just pops it on the table and he's like sitting there with me he keeps filling up my cup and we're just getting like wasted so you're and, definitely not making the flight at this point well I almost didn't but like we literally like finished the bottle I mean I was just like hammered and he's looking into my eyes and translating through Ben he's like you're gonna come down here and you're gonna fight MMA for us and I'm like what that's crazy I work on Wall Street like I have a good job and he's like I can see it in your eyes you still want to compete you miss the sting of competition and I'm like really really drunk and by the end of it you know we're arm in arm and I'm like yeah man I'm coming here man (laughs) oh my god dude this is crazy this is like a movie yeah and so I went back to the office and I sat down to the office Monday after like a week in Peru and I just started like getting back into my life you know my spreadsheets and my my trading bonds and all this stuff and it just kind of like was a seed that was planted in my head and I just kind of like started thinking about it more and more and more and a few months later I like I put together kind of a plan I, I slowly kind of like figured out all the arrangements and a few months later I quit my job and moved down to Peru 
What, a, what an insane tale. So when you moved to Peru, what's that adjustment like? You don't speak Spanish. It, it was like absolutely insane. You know, I've been to so many countries since then and it's weird. Like it's, I've never experienced anything like that. That feeling of, I mean, I had not traveled very much at that point. Like I had been with my family to some like Caribbean places and stuff like that, but I hadn't really like travel traveled. And I had gone, I mean, I was living in Manhattan, like a Wall Street life. And I just picked up to like living in this like tiny little apartment with my friend Ben and his family in Peru and like going to this gym every day, three times a day to train. And, you know, I think I had my first amateur fight 21 days after arriving. So this guy, Yvonne, who was like, this guy's legendary fighter in Peru and is our coach. He just has this mentality of like, just suck it up, get out there and just don't be a bitch basically. And so it was like, I had been there for like 20 days. I'm training. I still don't really know how to like throw a punch or anything like that. You know, there's a lot more that goes into it than you think. And I'm still like learning the basics. And he's like, you're going to fight in the amateur fight today. And I'm like, what? And you're basically like a college wrestler that by the I'm way, like, has been out of college for a while. I've been out of college for three years and has been sedentary and like kind of fat and like I'm just getting back into shape. I mean, I got I started exercising a little bit before I went down, but uh, yeah, so like I was like, no way, I'm not ready for this. And he's just like, just go out there and do it. And I did. And I went and I fought uh, an amateur fight and uh, I won just because of my wrestling. But I got like a big uppercut in my face, like as I was going in for a shot. I got a big uppercut that like busted my lip open. Actually, it didn't it didn't bust it open, but I just had this huge fat lip afterwards, and there was like there was blood all over me. And I remember just coming off and being like, my teammate was gonna like wipe the towel off, towel off the blood of my face, and I was like, no, 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 this is awesome. Leave it on. I want to take a picture. <laughs> I was like so excited about it. Wow, that's insane. So, so you do this amateur fight and your lifestyle's changed. It's not even a month after you left New York. I mean, how long are you there for? Yeah. So, I mean, like I just, like I was saying about wall street, how like I just threw myself like a hundred percent into it. It was the same with MMA. I just threw myself in. We had mandatory practices three times a day. We had this like sponsor who was, it was kind of a weird setup as like this patron who kind of like funded this team and just like made these, like had this big facility and like we had a chef there and like bunk beds in the back. And like we were, uh, we were training like three times a day. And so I, yeah, I fought that time. Then I fought again, like a week later, or maybe like two weeks later, my second amateur fight. And then, um, on April 16th, it was a few days after my birthday. I fought my first professional fight. And it was in a casino in like the the area of Miraflores, which is like the nice kind of like posh downtown area of Lima. And uh, and yeah, won my professional fight as well. So it was just kind of like I didn't even, you know, since then I've become much more of a traveler where I'm like, I can I go and see things and do things. And I've learned how to like things about hostels and traveling and tours and all this stuff. But at the time I didn't, I was in Peru and I was like living just about as local of a life as you could live, but I didn't even know like this whole other traveling community or I'd never stayed in a hostel before. And so, 
yeah, I was just really dedicated to this. And I was like in the gym. So I learned Spanish really quickly because most of the guys there didn't speak any English. And I, yeah, I mean, I had this very local experience. So you it was just, pretty cool. You were forced to learn Spanish, but I guess that opens up a, a little bit of the rest of the world, actually quite a bit of the rest of the world for you to more local experiences because when you speak the language, you're inherently going to have a more local experience. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, of course. I mean, I have since then, I, I mean, I lived in Spain for three years also after that. So I, st I spent a year in Peru and then a few years in Spain. And so like, I speak like very good Spanish now and it's amazing. Yeah. It really does open up the doors. Even I was just telling you, I was in Turkey for a while and like this, I was in Cappadocia and I met these like two Argentinian guys and then this couple from the Canary Islands and we all made this plan to rent a car and do this whole like we spent like a few days together traveling and like we only spoke Spanish the whole time and I think if I didn't speak Spanish I wouldn't have been able to like have this like meet these cool people that we just randomly met rented a car together and spent the next and then like one of the Argentinian guys like actually traveled with me for like another like week or two we went down to Antalya and this whole thing and meanwhile, I'm translating for all of them. And this happens all the time when I'm traveling. Like, no matter where I am, I wind up kind of latching on to Spanish speakers and being like the, the translator for them. It's funny. It's sort of unusual for an American um, to be that fluent in another language. It's not unheard of, but it's not normal considering uh, we don't usually speak multiple languages. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I get it because there's so many English speakers in the world, not just in the United States, but like all over the world. And then also our country is like huge and we all speak English, but it is really sad. I wish people would uh, focus a little bit more on learning languages. I mean, you know, you probably took a language in high school or whatever. It's a joke when we learn it. Like, uh, And even so many people, they'll say like, oh yeah, I studied French in college or something. And I'm like, yeah, but you don't even speak it. Like, it's so sad. Yeah, that's right. Like, I can go on the internet. I can read Le Mans, but can I go to France and talk to people? Uh, it takes me about a week to adjust, and even then I can only talk, like, a first or second grade kid, you know? Uh, yeah, je parle un petit peu français aussi. Oui, oui. <laughs> so, so just a little bit of, of French here and there, but I, how did this MMA career go? I mean, you talk about it as if it's in the past, so... You were 26, and how old are you now? I am 33 now. Okay, so we're the exact same age. Um, nice. Yeah. Nice. Um, how did that go? Like, you're fighting in a casino. Is this not just like a bizarre scene in your head, or are you so focused on competition that it just makes sense? Well, it was a pretty bizarre scene. I mean, every day down there was something like mind blowingly new and unique for me. Again, at this point, like, I think it wouldn't be as crazy but yeah it was just like crazy new thing and you know fighting mma it was so like i think the thing that appealed to me was that it was so adventurous i mean it went from like again like yuppie new york city life to like this blood sport like van damme kind of thing in south america and uh i think that's what appealed to me about it is the kind of craziness of it and like i had wrestled my whole life for like 17 years mm -hmm. and I always loved that but MMA was this other challenge because it was terrifying I mean it really scared me like when you think about going into an arena or into a cage with someone 
you know, with tiny little gloves on, their whole purpose is to injure you so that you can't continue. That's what they've trained for months just to more effectively injure you. They can use their fists, their elbows, their knees, their shins. You get like a shin to your face. Uh, there's blood, you know, if someone's on top of you just dropping their elbow on your face. So the fact that it was so scary to me, I mean like still to this day when I watch the UFC, I think like, man, you have to be so crazy to do that. And so it was this kind of like, for me, like a challenge, a thing that I had always said I could never do that. And so I, I wanted to do it. And I was committed to myself to doing it like 100%. And at the time, my goal was like, I want to be a, you know, a UFC fighter. I want to be world champion. Like I want to be, you know, the top level of it. Right. But, um, you know, I wound up fighting five times, which, you know, it was like for MMA, that's a five times in a year is quite a bit mm -hmm. and um you know i think in the end i just realized that like this is not the answer this is not the thing that, that is gonna get me like satisfaction and uh peace of mind it was just like too i mean it was crazy and like it's not like you don't make money you don't make a lot of money doing it until like you get to the very big leagues and at the time in peru like a lot of things kind of went wrong like the gym closed down the league kind of closed down they both ran into like financial trouble and then uh my life was kind of falling apart at that same time and i had decided to write a book about it and so this whole kind of like all, all of these things happened at the same time and i was like you know what this is not for me. Plus, you know, there's the, the aspect of the, the serious thing with brain injuries and everything like that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's, of course, a big consideration. So it was kind of a lot of things that happened. And I said, you know what? I don't need to be doing this anymore. And I don't love it as much as I thought I would. And so there's other adventures for me out there. Yeah, totally. And uh, I want to talk to you about some of these other adventures you've had, too, because it's just adventuring in itself is such a thing and i think i personally have evolved in my journey to where i'm more fixated on like the science and education of exploration at the moment but originally it was all about adventure and you, you will never explore without adventure although you might adventure to some degree without like contributing to science it's not saying you don't i mean that they're not exclusive you know um but before I move on to that, I want to talk to you about the perception that MMA fighters have. Because every MMA fighter I've ever talked to has been a pretty cerebral person, um, even though there's this maybe a public perception that's the opposite of that. Do you agree? Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. I mean, not everyone, but I would agree that the public perception, when you see these people who are like, in there again dropping elbows on a bloody face you think like what a neanderthal or something and yeah i have met so many of the most amazing like warm-hearted kind people that fight mma and it's this weird contradiction again my friend ben who is a fighter in peru he is like the most charitable person ever he started a few charities he's every minute of every day he's thinking about helping children or helping people or whatever and 
he's in there in the cage fighting. And I, I think there's a lot of people like that. And I think, you know, you could trace it back to the roots of martial arts, right? Which are about respect and mm -hmm. discipline and, you know, having that, that discipline in your life, the ability to like walk in there and confront fear is not something that just any like brute does there you have to kind of make a conscious effort and have the discipline to train that so it's not just like oh yeah man i could throw a punch and like then you just go out there and fight i mean there is there is a lot of other aspects to it especially to rise to the higher levels like you look at the top fighters in the ufc and you know the level of strategy and technique required to get there and discipline to be able to train to i mean like a ufc title fight is 25 minutes and to have the stamina to fight in a cage with another human for 25 minutes requires a lot of training so um so yeah i mean i think there is a level of of artistry to it that is not seen by most people yeah i would agree with that so tell me a little bit about your other adventures you do this cage fighting thing i'm sure your family in america is freaking out <laughs> yeah they were not happy about it at all <laughs> So do you have to go back home to the States when things fall apart and you go on a book tour or how does that break down? Uh, I did go back to the United States for a little bit and um, I, I was working on the book at that time. Like it kind of, I, I, I was working on that book and then I started actually, I was still working on it when I went into, I moved to Spain. I got a job teaching English in Spain and uh, I kind of thought like, this is my next adventure and I'll put that other thing behind me and so I lived in Spain for a few years and you know it was that that was like what really opened my eyes in a different way to travel because that whole time in Peru I mean I had traveled around Peru and within Peru but I didn't like you know I was there for a year and I didn't go to any other South American countries I didn't do all this like touristy stuff and everything like that and then when I lived in Spain I kind of had this whole other community of Americans abroad, which I didn't have before. And all of a sudden it was like, oh, wow, we can go, you can catch a cheap Ryanair flight to Dublin for the weekend or mm -hmm. Prague, or Budapest or Brussels or whatever. And I started meeting people. I mean, I, I kind of became like almost obsessive about like meeting new people and like new cultures and everything like that. And I, I traveled all that I could and I met all these people and I studied all these different countries and you know, made thousands of friends everywhere and, and went on these adventures. And what was the original question? Um, oh, yeah. So I, was, I, I had published my book while I was in Spain, and that was really exciting. And that was kind of like a, a new thing for me. I mean, I think when you talk about adventures, I think one of the interesting things about adventures is that uh, most people picture an adventure like being indiana jones in the jungles of south america or something like that but totally I, I think an adventure can be any kind of uncomfortable experience which kind of challenges your your beliefs and makes you grow and adapt and everything like that and so i think even you know like publishing a book or for someone else maybe starting a business can be an adventure or starting a podcast you know these are all things that are like challenging in a different way so it doesn't necessarily have to be just just physical but I do happen to love those physical adventures as well. <laughs> yeah, it, it, you're right. It can be going to a bar in Dublin or uh, going to 
probably more likely a country like you did in Peru where you don't speak the language and navigating that or in the case of Spain I think some of the history in Spain for an American is it's pretty interesting to confront if you go into uh, mosques and you look at the history of Moorish conquest and things you're sort of confronted with this version of history that doesn't align with the American Protestant Christian version of history. And I think that's an adventure to explore what happened in the past here, because this is a whole new world to me if you go to like Alhambra or something like that. Yeah, I mean, I love, I could talk about, I could do a whole podcast talking about Spanish history. I mean, the the, the Moorish conquest, you know, 17, or not, 700 to 1492. And, you know, I think what's so interesting about Spain is that there's so many different like cultures within Spain. So you have like the Catalonians, you know, Barcelona and that whole area and Valencian, and then you have Basque and then Gallego. So there's like five different languages within Spain and you have separate identities. And then you have the Spanish civil war and the, the, you know, Franco, which they don't like to talk about. And you have the, like you said, the Moorish conquest and you have uh, like Andalusia with Sevilla, Seville, mm-hmm. Granada, Malaga, um, and Cordoba, which have all this like uh, influence from Moorish influence. And so, yeah, it's a really fascinating country. And I mean, I think that it really opens our eyes. Like the, as Americans, we don't have, I always have to, you have to be careful when you say this. I always say we don't have many buildings older than 200 years, but there are settlements from the Native Americans and everything like that. But you have, for example, in Spain or even in England or whatever, you have churches that are a thousand years old. And sometimes, you know, you have people in England, I have friends that say like, oh yeah, my house was built in 1590 or something. And, you know, in my town where I grew up, if a house is built in like 1898, it's got a plaque outside saying like, this is a, this is a historical thing. And so, yeah, that's what I think really attracts me to Europe is that old sensibility and the ability to walk on a street and say like, Oh, Cervantes walked on the street or Shakespeare did or or Napoleon or whatever. And I, I, I love that. And I just spent time in Turkey as I've, keep saying but the uh the Hagia Sophia like when you walk around Istanbul like you're just steeped in history and it's so cool and I I just love that feeling so is it fair to say that some of your wanderings have been to historic sites in pursuit of that feeling of walking on top of this sort of seven layer salad of history yeah I mean I I, I'm not sure like it's so conscious as that but i that is one thing that i i do love and appreciate about these places the ability to learn about that and i love actually i will say that i'll I'll say this some of my favorite places are places where modern history has happened and of course let me let me preface modern history has happened happens everywhere but like i've traveled around i hitchhiked around the balkans i went to like croatia serbia bosnia and uh, I love again what happened in the '90s there with the civil war, and then uh, all all the conflict after that. Like it's really sad. It's very tragic. You learn about the uh, the siege of Sarajevo in Bosnia, and it's like really sad to hear about. But it's f- 
fascinating to be able to hear first or secondhand accounts of that history. So like if you go into France and you have some tour guide telling you like, oh, Napoleon in the year 17, nah, 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 it kind of like goes in one ear and out the other. But yeah. when you hear someone in Sarajevo say, I remember the siege, I was a kid. We used to have kindergarten in the basement of my apartment complex and I'd never had chocolate until I was nine years old. And by the way, if you walk on that street right there, a sniper would shoot you. So you could only walk there when there was a truck passing and you would walk behind it. That's like crazy to me. I mean, that's so interesting and so, I mean, so sad at the same time. And same thing, I went to Ukraine, one of my favorite countries, and you hear about conflicts with Russia and people, I met someone that was like, this was a few years ago and she was like, you know, I have an, I own an apartment in Crimea. I don't know if I still own it because it's now part of Russia. I'm going tomorrow. I'm taking this bus and I have to go to the border and then like walk across a kind of like demilitarized zone and then get another bus to go. Like that's so fascinating to me. Yeah, that is crazy to think about because it puts, I think it puts history in context. Um, then the sure. context is that history is still happening all around us. And even in the U.S. today, I think we feel probably especially close to history that's happening around us, maybe even to a scary degree. Yeah, but I would say that the one thing about the U.S. that um, it kind of it's kind of annoys me is that we as Americans going back to the thing about not speaking our language, we also don't pay attention to what's happening in the rest of the world, like at all. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's all of those things where like, you know, someone like the Daily Show or whatever goes out and asks people to find like the country of Iran on a map and they like are all touching the wrong continent and things like that. Mm -hmm. And I mean, also just like the news, you start to realize like how little news you get of the world. You know, it's sad when there's a bombing somewhere in Africa and people like it's a five minute headline and then the next day, no one cares or you know there's conflicts with you know some again like what's happening in ukraine or, or syria or any of these other things you kind of get like the five minute version of it but people aren't really paying attention to like you know you hear about the kurds being displaced or something or, or you know so many different countries and again i'm not an expert i don't know but it's great to hear to meet people from these countries i've met people from iran syria iraq i have friends from there and to hear first-person accounts is uh, is amazing. It's something you can't get from the news. Yeah. So, when you see the news here at home, what, given your experience as sort of this global citizen, how do you feel about out like outreach, outreach to Americans that perhaps don't see as much of the world or perceive or pay much attention to it? you feel an obligation to sort of shake them and tell them what's up or are you just sort of like, well, shit, I can't change them? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I kind of do. Like, I, I try to keep things in perspective and I try to tell people, um, but I just kind of wind up sounding like this prick that just like traveled a lot. <laughs> and it's like, you know, someone that comes back from like an, a, an exchange program is like, let me tell you about this. So, I mean, I, I do. Um, I just wish that we would be more familiar with other cultures. And I think about, you know, me growing up and I was probably the same way. Like, I think I always like to say that I didn't have a lot of interactions with foreigners growing up, but then I kind of think about it. And I think like, man, at my high school, there were a lot of people that were first or second generation immigrants from another country. 
And I never really asked them about their culture or anything. Like, it was just like, oh, they're from another country. And like, that was kind of it. Like, I think about like the way I was, I thought about things in high school and it was like, oh, this person's a Latino or they're Asian. And I never even, never even like really occurred to me. And now I like, I'm so interested in it. And I just, am like, whenever I meet someone from another country and we're, you know, we're from the United States where it's a melting pot where there are people from all over. And so like, you know, I start talking to the guy at Dunkin' Donuts the other day, and I was like, oh, you're from Guatemala. Cool. Wow, that's cool. I always wanted to visit that place. Amazing. And, like, I think you can even just, without traveling, just doing it at home, just being kind of open-minded and accepting and curious of other cultures. Because, again, we live in a place that's full of people from around the world. That's a good point. And I think sometimes, like, I grew up in a small farm town in Tennessee, and I don't feel like there was any kind of encouragement to get outside of my little social structure. You know, it was like, yeah. you're going to hang out with middle-class white kids and middle-class white kids are going to be your friends. And unless I was like playing sports or something, I didn't have any like natural interaction with the people from central America that were on the damn soccer team with me, you know, or the guys from Africa that had come over that were on the soccer team. And, stuff like that and and god if you weren't playing that if you were on the baseball team shit you didn't know anybody from anywhere else what about the what about the dominicans yeah right <laughs> well we didn't we didn't have any dominican dudes at our school but yeah that, i mean they might have been playing baseball for sure um, yeah yeah so i think as i have become more of a a traveler and kind of like you i didn't really go anywhere until about 26 or 7 and i'm 33 now just in that five or six year span of time by exploring the world and opening up my mental state to other people and asking genuinely about their lives i feel that i've become a much more well-rounded person a much more responsible citizen um just someone that's more importantly probably able to help other people more than i ever could when I was trying to live that dream of get a job, pay your bills, get a girlfriend, get a wife, get a house, do the things and wear the golden handcuffs, as you said. Yeah, I mean, I think that's interesting. I think, it, I mean, it's almost like a little cliche to talk about how travel's changed. You, but like, yeah. I definitely think about that a lot. Like, I, I was saying how I've met like thousands of people and I'm always, you know, like in hostels or whatever, just on the street, like I've become a much more sociable person and much more like open-minded and open book to a lot of people. And so like, it's kind of crazy. Like you kind of meet someone traveling and like after five minutes, you're telling each other like your life, life stories and your deepest insecurities and everything like that. And I don't think I was like that before. And so I've definitely taken that back with me and had this, you know, like an ability to connect with people a little bit more and to be much more compassionate to people, you know, like I've met people again from all these different countries that have befallen on tough circumstances. One of my best friends is a, was an illegal immigrant from Colombia and Spain. And like, you know, you just kind of like have a lot more empathy for people. And I think it's really something that's crazy. You know, like I have hitchhiked a lot and people are like, oh, that's so dangerous, or oh, well, you can't afford it. And it's like, no, man, you meet the most amazing people. Like, 
you uh, like I was just saying a hashtag in Serbia. Like I got picked up by a guy who was like a truck driver, and he's like, you know, come stay on my couch. And went to a big barbecue. He wouldn't let me pay. He like brought me to this concert again. Wouldn't let me pay. Like this whole thing. And like guys that don't even have that much will give you anything or like you know want to be hospitable to you and then like you come back home and like you go to new york city for a weekend where i have like all these friends and i'm like man can i crash on your couch like nah man today's not a good day or whatever you know yeah that that really does happen and uh i was on a road trip this summer and went to from memphis to oregon to maine down to new york and i was trying to be socially distanced camp the whole way and really avoid hotels and stuff but if i had a friend i would try to hit him up and visit with them if you know maybe we could go to a, a beer garden or a patio outside or something in new york and i had so many new york friends when i was on the west coast they would dm me and be like dude come to new york yeah and, you know two weeks later hey i'm in new york oh i'm busy <laughs> it's like what the shit man i just drove like the actual oregon trail and then some <laughs> to hang out with you this is bull and I didn't say that, you know, you just let it slide, but of course. Yeah. It's like, that's so shitty. Um, tell me about hitchhiking around cause that I've never done that. Um, does sound sketchy to me. What was your first impression of that? You know, like I, it always sounded sketchy to me, but it was always something you talk about adventure. Like that was always something, you know, I maybe read Kerouac when I was younger and it was like, Oh, that's, that's what I want to do. And honestly, I thought it was like crazier than it is. It's actually like not, it doesn't, when, when you're doing it, it doesn't feel like dangerous or anything. Um, it's just really amazing. I mean, there's a whole like set, my friend Martin first taught me like how to do it. And there's really a lot more thought that goes into it than just, standing on the road and putting out your thumb like there's a whole set of ways to do it like right, you explain wanted, that that's because that's yeah i thought it was right. just you like stand on the side of the road <laughs> I'll, I'll give you like a quick primer so like okay if you're in a city let's say you're in just give an example like you're in like barcelona and want to go to madrid that's a bad example it's like too far but like you want to get out of the city center first of all so like if you're in a city center you can't hitchhike because all the cars are local traffic mm -hmm. so you need to get just outside of the center and you want to find the road that's going in the direction you want to go but you can't just stand on the side of the road like on a highway in some places you can in some places it's illegal but also it's not very great place to hitchhike because cars are going really fast and so they have like a split second to make a decision to pull over so what you want to do is find like a clover leaf or even like right before the entrance ramp if there's like a gas station or a bus stop or somewhere where there's like a red light where the car is going slow or stopped so they have enough time to uh to a pull over safely and like enough space to pull over safely and they're going slow enough where they have enough time to make a decision. And so you stand there, put your thumb out, or make a cardboard sign, even better if you have one. And, uh, and, and yeah, I mean, like, just smiling is the most important thing. They say you don't pick up a ride with your thumb, you pick it up with your smile. And, uh, and some other time, you know, you won't maybe, I think one of the big misconceptions is that you'll just get, like, a ride and they'll take you exactly to where you want to go. Uh -huh. But, you know, if it's like a four or five hour ride away, it might take like six different rides to get you there. You know, someone will say, oh, I'm only going 20 kilometers down the road or I'm, I'm only going to this town. And so you have to make a decision. Do you want to get a ride with them or do you want to just wait for like maybe a more direct one? So there's a lot of decision making that goes into it also because 
if someone can only take you like 10 kilometers down the road and then they're going to drop you off in some like really a place that's not ideal for hitchhiking it's probably worth it to just wait for someone who can take you a little bit further and you know maybe they can't take you exactly in the right direction but they're going kind of in the right direction and so it's just like kind of real world problem solving like i always joked that like they should have like they should send like corporate executives to go like do it over somewhere uh just because it's like this really like it teaches you a lot about yourself and uh you're out there like having to figure out you might get stuck in some small town in the middle of nowhere in like germany and you're you're like damn how do i get out of here and you got to walk up to people at a gas station and say excuse me are you heading in this direction or excuse me do you speak english and so it, you know it really takes away a lot of the uh things that you kind of like are, a lot of your comforts and you have to really get out of your comfort zone to do it and so i think it's I think it's really an amazing experience. It's fascinating. How far have you been able to successfully consecutively hitchhike day after day after day? Oh, you can go pretty far. I mean, I usually don't kind of go day after day after day because like I'll usually like want to stop for a little bit or something or sometimes it's just like I just like I'm like, "Yeah, I'll just take a bus." So I'll do like a little bit. I kind of go in spurts more because a lot of times again like in a lot of these places like a bus is probably pretty cheap like if it's like a 3 or 4 hour ride you mm -hmm. can get a bus for like 5 or 10 bucks a lot of times so it's not even about money but uh I, you know I kind of do it more in spurts like I I do have a, I do have some friends though that will go like across all of Europe in like a week you know they'll like my friend Martin will go from like Denmark down to like Croatia or my friend uh Helena goes from Ukraine went from Ukraine to Portugal and like all that stuff um and you've but, never had a, yeah. a sketchy experience at all? No, in fact, it's exactly the opposite. I meant to say this, like some of the nicest people I've ever met in my entire life, I would say almost, let's say 80% of the time, someone that is with you, if you stop at like a gas station, they'll say like, do you need anything? Can I get you anything? Like people, I've like, you pull over to the gas station, they'll like come back and bring me a water I didn't even ask for. Or like in Bosnia, we went to like, stopped and got lunch and the guy like would not let me pay um you know like it's really common like i would say the biggest difficulty is when people don't speak any english um and that can be like usually you're able to communicate and that's kind of part of the fun too it's like you're sitting in this car this person that doesn't speak any english yeah. one thing that you can do i don't typically do this um but you can do is you can download Google Translate on your phone and you can download offline even if you don't have cell phone service and you could uh you can download the dictionary offline you can type in a full sentence and Google like translates the whole thing so it's kind of a good hack uh for not just for this but for anything for traveling in general um, yeah yeah i've used that it's useful. it does help although it's kind of it doesn't always it's not always precise but yeah but you can communicate what you want to say usually yeah uh, before you wrap up here, Raleigh, I want to talk to you about your podcast, The Divergent Path. Um, tell me about it. Yeah, so I have been thinking about starting a podcast for years because I, again, I met all these people. Like, I think a lot of people see my story and they think, wow, you're insane. And, you know, they say like, oh, my God, I can't believe you do all these things. And then I go traveling and I meet people that have done like way crazier things than I have. Like I have friends, like uh, my friend rode across Afghanistan on a bike. Okay, uh, that's uh, fucking insane. 
Yeah. And uh, well, he's a good example. He's someone I want to interview on my podcast. But he doesn't speak English. He speaks Spanish. And I'm like, dude, just come. He speaks like okay English, but he's like too embarrassed to speak. Yeah. But, but that's a good example of someone that I met speaking Spanish. But like, you know, I just meet so many people that have done these crazy things. And so it started as that. Like my very first episode was my friend Marina, who's Brazilian. And she's traveled to 108 countries. And she spent like two years traveling. She has this crazy story. She's been to all the, she traveled to like all of the Stan countries, except for Afghanistan. She went to like Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan and everything as a solo female traveler. And so I've known her for years and we just kind of like, I was like, hey, I'm thinking about starting a podcast. You want to, you want to come on? She was like, yeah, when? I was like, how about tonight? She was like, yeah, cool. And so she called me from Brazil and we recorded the first episode and it was like really fun. And so I've done 50 episodes since then. And I, I don't just, interview travel people like I just interviewed just today I posted one with a New Yorker cartoonist Ellis Rosen who's like awesome guy and I've interviewed authors and and podcasters and New York Times bestseller Emmy award winner so like it's been uh it's been really fun it's been like an amazing way as you know it's been an amazing way to connect with people like after you do a podcast you kind of like are like have that you know that kind of cool experience and just I get to talk to interesting people and learn from them, so uh, I love it. Yeah, dude, the best thing about this show is connecting with people. And by the way, you can find the Divergent Path podcast on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts. Um, I, what's the Google Google Podcasts? Um, Google Podcasts, I think. Yeah. yeah. Stitcher, all those, all the all that stuff. All that stuff. I just subscribed to it while we were talking because it's right up my alley. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, man, it's about connecting with people and. With this show, we have a growing audience. We're still fairly new. I mean, last season was kind of getting our feet wet. This season, it, I, I really nailed where I want to be. I want to do the theater of the mind stuff. I want to take people on a journey and sort of paint the scene really in the way that I write. I mean, if you read a story that I write that I'm actually like into, it's going to be very similar to that. But the best part is connecting with people because you do have a cool experience, and then you have a genuine way like to reach out down the line i think it's interesting what you said as like being a storyteller like me as a writer and i think i i consider storytelling to be the kind of supreme art whether you're talking to someone uh, writing making a video even just i was saying today like the the cartoonist he was talking about his one panel cartoons and he was talking about how they actually tell a story, you know, you just have one snapshot, but it's really like got a beginning, middle and end kind of thing. Yeah. And it's a story. And that's what I like about podcasting too. And I think, you know, since we're writers, it like lends itself to that. Like when you're on the podcast, even if you're hosting and someone else is telling their story, you're kind of crafting the story. And I think there's an art to that. And it's really fun to be able to get other people's stories out and tell a kind of like, character arc within a podcast so uh so good job of that as well thank you so uh last question i have for you i know you've written one book are you going to write another one yeah you know i mean i i honestly have been working on a book called how to meet friends while traveling and i've written a lot of it i've been pitching it a little bit but you know as i was saying i touched on that a lot during my during the episode here i've been talking about meeting people and doing all of these things and I just thought like this is something that intimidates a lot of people because people are like I can't solo travel I'll be alone and I'm just like I just laugh at that like it's, it's the opposite you know and all of these different 
kind of techniques and abilities to, to interact with other cultures are something that I have learned that I didn't know before. And I just thought this is a really fascinating way uh, to connect with people. And so, yeah, I've been working on that and uh, we'll see how that goes. But yeah, nothing there. Awesome. Cool. Well, hey, when you get that going, let's do another show because I think it would be great to do a show on solo travel. And I mean, there's almost nothing better, right? Yeah. I mean, like I almost exclusively solo travel. Like sometimes people, uh, I, the few times I travel with people, I don't, I, I don't know. I feel like I, I sound kind of bad, but I don't enjoy it as much. Like I love just going out there, just landing in a new country like and not knowing anything about the country not knowing anyone there to me actually i kind of i i actually don't do a lot of research before i go so I, i've been to like georgia the country i like just land i'm like i know nothing about it here i am i don't have a hostel like let's go so that's kind of the adventure for me like let's see how many people i can meet and by the time i leave i know a lot about the country you know and like to me it's this kind of challenge of like let's go meet people make a friend group here and interact with as many locals as possible and have this kind of crazy experience that's amazing well hey raleigh thanks so much for joining us on the show today guys be sure to dis- uh, subscribe to his podcast the divergent path with raleigh peterkin and follow him on instagram at raleigh peterkin r-o-l-l-i-e the get lost podcast is a production of sold outside exploration company Follow us on Instagram at Get Lost Podcast and please leave a review for the show.